offering my most loving pranams at Bhagwan's lotus feet. Dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, A Triune Pilgrimage. This is Prem, your friend from Team Radio Sai, and I'm here to continue this beautiful journey that we are having together through the Bhagavad Gita. We have completed three chapters. The last time around, we went through a summary of the third chapter, and we are here to continue with the Bhagavad Gita, the fourth chapter. This also happens to be the 50th episode of the Gita series, so I'm very, very grateful to all of you for being with me through this entire journey. I think it has been very beautiful, whatever we've learned, we've had the opportunity to see how practical the lessons of the Bhagavad Gita are and let's, as always, begin by praying to Swami that we not merely go through these verses intellectually and not merely read, share, talk about them, but we also as sincerely as possible, try to practice some of these lessons that we've learnt, especially the second and third chapter. The third chapter itself is about Karma Yoga and we've seen how the entire thing is about how to lead a life in society but with a spiritual goal. right? And I think we're going to speak a little about that today also. But we're going to begin the fourth chapter, as always, as like all the other chapters, it's a very significant chapter. It's a very significant chapter for a few reasons. One is it contains some very popular shlokas of the Bhagavad Gita. Some of us who are not uh, very much aware about what the Bhagavad Gita has to say will still know a few of these shlokas. We'll be familiar with them. Some of the shlokas are ones that we use in everyday life. We'll come to all of them. But more importantly, there's a certain part of the fourth chapter which speaks about the nature, the purpose, and the mission of a divine advent or the mission of an avatar, right? So that's pretty close to our heart. We'll read that. We'll be easily able to compare that with what we've seen in Swami's life. So I think that is again a very important part. But for most part, it again emphasizes on the importance of karma yoga. So there's going to be again a, a discourse on how a person who acts as a karma yogi will stand apart from the rest, right? That's going to be a portion on that. Then, of course, when we talk about karma yoga, the most important emotion that goes with that is the emotion of the attitude of sacrifice, right? So, there's going to be a portion which speaks about the concept of sacrifice a little more in detail. So, there's a lot to come and I'm sure it's going to be equally enlightening going through the fourth chapter, just like how going through the third chapter was, just like how going through the second and first chapter was. So, with that, let's begin uh, what we have to see in this week's episode and the beginning of the fourth chapter. But before that, Krishna ended the previous chapter with a very, very profound and a beautiful shloka where he had said, Identify yourself with the Atma, control your mind and senses and defeat this enemy who is desire. So that identification with the real self is pretty much the cornerstone of the entire yoga that Krishna is teaching here, right? So that's the culmination of the karma yoga. He says, so you will have to first identify yourself, not with the body, not with the senses, not even with the mind and intellect, but with one who is the master of all of this, the Atma, you really that. So identifying yourself with that self, there's a beautiful phrase which says, with yourself, control yourself, right? So identifying yourself with the true self, control this 
maya self or this illusory self of yours which is made of mind senses intellect and the body right so that was the last shloka in the previous chapter and that's a very important thought because swami says from that point krishna is really revealing the yoga of wisdom that's very interesting because we thought that krishna was teaching karma yoga but swami calls it the yoga of wisdom purely because whatever be the path be it karma upasana jnana bhakti whatever be the path swami says the goal is wisdom so this might be a different route to reach the same goal but the goal is the same so it still is the path of wisdom it still is a means for reaching wisdom and arjuna is being taught that great secret to reach that goal by krishna himself the first verse of the fourth chapter begins with krishna himself explaining what a valuable thing that he is teaching arjuna here he wants to sensitize arjuna to the fact that what he is teaching is purely is very very esoteric right that's the best word to use it is not a, a mundane language it is not common place to be aware of this it is not easily accessible and it is not something which is trendy and modern if i could put it that way we listen to the shloka as always i have uh, the rendition by brother sham one of our alumnus who always uh, has been kind enough to help us with the rendition of the bhagavad gita shlokas very very beautifully i often get uh, feedback regarding that from all of you that it has been rendered very well and i join you all in expressing my gratitude to brother sham so we listen to the shloka the first verse of the fourth chapter i'll give you a brief meaning after that and then we will discuss in detail what krishna is telling arjuna shri bhagavanu vacha imam vivasvate yogam proktavanaham avyayam vivasvan manave praha the blessed lord said i imparted this imperishable yoga to vivaswan vivaswan taught this to manu and manu transmitted it to ikshvaku in one of swami's very profound quotes swami would say i have come in order to repair the ancient highway to god right i think most of us would have heard this or read this in one of swami's books swami would always say that what i am saying is not new it is not something which is modern or which has been thought about now this is ancient wisdom when swami started the monthly magazine of the uh, ashram swami accosted professor kasturi and swami asked him what name do you think will be suitable Professor Kasturi did not want to say anything because he wanted Swami to give a name, but uh, he was hesitant. But Swami was insistent that you should uh, suggest some name. So Professor Kasturi said, "Swami, how about the Godward Path? Swami Prema Yoga and a few other names like that." Swami said no to all of those names, and Swami said, "Let us call it Sanatana Sarathi, the Eternal Charioteer." it was a clear reference of course to the symbolic role that krishna played at the kurukshetra war but swami was also hinting that it is not any sarathi it is sanatana sarathi the word sanatana means ancient and eternal right the message that krishna gave arjuna or the message that swami is giving all of us is not new it is eternal 
that is why krishna is calling it avyayam or imperishable krishna could mean that this knowledge is imperishable or it could mean the knowledge of the imperishable right it could be looked at as both ways but he uses the word avyayam which means imperishable and nevertheless he is making a reference to the fact that this yoga he has just taught arjuna which we went through in the third chapter is not some kind of a new age philosophy because he says imam avyayam yogam this unperishable yoga proktavan aham i taught it vivasvate to vivaswan vivasvate actually means the resplendent one or the effulgent one so it's a reference to sun vivaswan is another name for sun god in sanskrit so he says imam avyayam yogam proktavanaham vivasvate so i taught this imperishable knowledge to vivaswan or sun god vivaswan manave praha taught it to manu manuhu ikshvakave abravit manu then passed it on to ikshvaku now who are these three people vivaswan of course is sun god manu and ikshvaku who are they there are many many names for sun god in sanskrit and vivaswan is one of that so krishna says the first recipient of this knowledge is the sun and swami explains in gita vahini extensively why sun is mentioned and what is the significance of this knowledge being given to sun god swami lists out why sun is always considered very very special in the vedic tradition and swami lists out the reason swami says firstly the sun is given a very unique position of glory in the scriptures the very fact that sun is given a very important place in the scriptures is it goes by the fact that when we all used to study sanskrit in school our teachers would say the one noun for which there are many many synonyms is sun there are i don't know how many 27 or 28 i don't know i think sanskrit scholars who are listening might be able to point that out more accurately but there is no other word or name or noun or place or any uh, action in a sanskrit language which has as many synonyms as the word sun has right surya vivaswan is one aditya is one there are many many i think most of us will be able to list out at least 5 or 6 so that itself shows the important place sun has in the vedic tradition then swami goes on to say the sun is considered as the visible manifestation of the lord sun is also seen as the source of time right we all know that our day begins and ends with the sunrise and sunset So in that sense sun is looked up as the father of time and because it is the father of time it limits and regulates the number of years each one lives right so the sun is seen as a supreme arbiter the marker of human destiny then swami goes on to this the sun is the source of life it is the source of warmth it is the source of rains and so it is the source of food and nourishment for all so in that sense sun is the life giving force then swami goes on to say above all of these things the reason why the mention of sun in this particular place is very significant is the sun is a perfect example of selfless service and renunciation and in all krishna says that surya or sun is a great yogi and being a great yogi made him a deserving recipient of this great knowledge Swami then goes on to say how this knowledge 
cannot be literally given to anyone, right? That is the importance of mentioning sun god. The person who is receiving this knowledge, especially receiving it from the Lord himself, must seek it and must in the process become deserving. In fact, Swami says that Arjuna was deserving and that is why he is receiving this knowledge. The reason why Krishna is taking the trouble to explain all of this to Arjuna is he has sought it and he has become deserving. And how Arjuna has become deserving is going to come later in today's episode. Swami explains that and there's another verse which we'll come across for that. But coming back to the shloka, Krishna says, I gave this yoga to Vivaswan. He gave it to Manu. Now, who is this Manu? Manu is considered as one of the first kings of each Manvantara. Manvantara is a time period. Just probably for the technical background of this whole thing, there is a lot of of information, but I'm not going into all of that. As always, too much information, I'm not capable of processing it myself and uh, I don't want to burden you with that. But just to give you a little background, in Sanatana Dharma tradition, time is not linear. Time is considered cyclic. So there is creation, there is a period of time when creation exists and there is dissolution and then there is again creation, right? So time is considered as cyclic in uh, Sanatana Dharma tradition. The period between creation and dissolution is referred to as a kalpa. That is the word we use. And each kalpa that is starting from creation to dissolution is said to be about 4.32 billion years, right? 4.32 billion years make one kalpa. And in each kalpa, it is said that there are 14 manvantaras. So each kalpa is divided into 14 parts. Each part is called a manvantara. And each manvantara has a king who is Manu, who is the first king, who then sets order in the whole society, who passes on the wisdom and so on and so forth. That is why we have one of the primary smritis in the Sanatana Dharma tradition is Manusmriti, right? Where the Vedas are interpreted into what is to be followed in social life. That's what Manusmriti is all about. So Manu is one of the primary kings or in fact the first king in a Manvantara. So Surya taught this knowledge to Manu. Manu is also considered as the son of Brahma. And Manu taught it to his son Ikshvaku. Now, Ikshvaku is one of the ancestors in whose clan was born Lord Rama, right? That's why Rama has got the name Ikshvaku Kulatilaka. In some of the bhajans, we have that uh, the name Ikshvaku coming. So, Ikshvaku is one of the ancestors in whose lineage was born Lord Rama. And in fact, all of these people, be it Manu, Ikshvaku, they all come in what is referred to as the clan of the sun or Surya Vamsha. Now, there are two reasons why Krishna is explaining this, or at least two reasons which we will have to focus on. The point of this entire history is to show, first of all, that the knowledge is ancient and also to drop that hint that Krishna is not this limited person who is standing in front of Arjuna. He is not this form alone. We'll come to the part where Arjuna raises this doubt as to how is it that Krishna could have taught this to somebody like Manu and you know, because Manu and Ikshvaku were much before Krishna was born. So how is Krishna saying that he taught it to them? So that's a question which Arjuna is going to raise later. But I want to take a moment before that to talk about some of the details of this particular shloka. 
I want to draw your attention to a very subtle usage of words in the shloka. Technically speaking, if I were to translate that shloka, Krishna is saying, I taught it to Surya, Surya taught it to Manu, Manu taught it to Ikshvaku, right? But if we look at the words which are being used in this particular verse, three different words are being used for this verb taught. It is not the same verb which is being used. First, Krishna says, Proktavanaham. So the word he uses is Proktavan. Proktavat means to declare. The Lord declared that this is the path of yoga. And only the Lord who has the authority can reveal the path, isn't it? Any teacher is also a student. A teacher must have learnt whatever he or she is teaching from someone and then is passing on that knowledge to a student. But when we talk about the Lord, the Lord reveals or declares what is the means to reach Him. If a friend is to come and advise me, you know, you have to do this or you have to invest your money in this manner or, you know, this is how you go about filling your taxes or whatever, you know, something like that, we will look at him and say, are you sure this works? Are you sure this is how it happens? But when you hear from the Lord, you don't have to ask that. Because he is the source of that knowledge. As Krishna said in the third chapter, when the world was created, the path to the goal was also created and I am telling you that, right? So when Krishna says, I instructed Surya, he uses the word Proktavanaham. I declared it or I revealed it to Lord Surya. Then Krishna uses the word Praha. He says, Vivasvan Manave Praha. The word Praha means more or less to instruct or to teach. There is still a tone of authority, but there he had said, I am declaring or revealing, but here he is saying Praha. He taught it to him. Because it has been received from the Lord and more importantly, when you have full faith that it is the word of the Lord and you have practiced it, like how Swami explained about Surya or Sun God, then you have the authority to instruct to another person. right? And finally, Krishna uses the phrase Manuhu Ikshvakave Abravit. Abravit literally means conveyed or shared. right? It just says that he passed it on to that other person. So you can see how this verb is much, much simpler or much less strong compared to the other ones. When Krishna gave it to Surya, it was a revelation. When Surya gave it to Manu, it was an instruction where still he could play the role of a guru. But here it reduces to a information sharing or passing on, literally, Abhravit. He just told it to Ikshvaku. Now, why is this important to take note of? I think most of us are very, very fortunate to be in the middle of the cycle. right? We are probably in the place of I am not raising ourselves to the deservedness of Lord Surya. As I always say, you know, we might not be a Mirabai, we might not be a Thyagaraja, or we might not be a Radha, we might not be Arjuna, we might not be Dharmaraja, we might not be Hanuman, we might not be Vibhishana. But the Lord is the same, right? Our Swami is the same Ramakrishna. We may not be those saints or great devotees whom we talk about and read about in the Bhagavatam, but the same Swami is there in our life. So in that sense, we probably are not as deserved as Lord Surya, but the same Swami is instructing us. 
So in that sense, we are all fortunate to receive the knowledge directly from Swami. We are all fortunate to listen to Swami's discourses directly. We are fortunate to read His discourses directly. And when we have that fortune, it means that there are two things we must do from this shloka that we have just gone through and this particular beautiful play of words that I mentioned. Firstly, the conviction in Swami's words. He is not teaching or instructing that we should have doubts and we should ask Swami, Swami, are you sure this is going to work? We must have the full conviction that Swami is revealing what is the truth. Swami is declaring what is the truth. We do not have to look at Swami's words and check if what Swami is saying is right. We don't have to look at Swami's word and analyze if what Swami is saying is true or false. Because what comes from the Lord is a declaration, is a revelation. So that conviction is the first point that we must remember when we know that we are fortunate to receive the message directly from Swami. The next important thing is, which is again can be said is an all-important thing, we keep repeating it again and again, we must embody the instruction that we receive from Him. right? Like how Swami explained about Surya. He embodied the jnana, the karma yoga was given to Him. Today, Swami says, the sun god is an example of a karma yogi. right? So when we receive the message from the Lord, the conviction that it is a revelation and declaration, and then we must embody that message. As Swami would any number of times say, I don't want pracharaks, I want acharyas. And the difference between that, Swami would say, pracharak is somebody who reads from a book and will probably speak about it, right? But Swami says, I want acharyas. Acharanalo petti chupinchevadu, Swami would say. I hope I'm saying it right in Telugu. But the essence of that is, somebody who practices and then shows it to others as an acharya. A pracharak is somebody who speaks about it, right? So Swami would say, I don't want pracharaks, I want acharyas. In a more humorous style, Swami would, uh, I don't know whether it is Swami's play of words or it is Professor Kasturi's play of words. I don't uh, recall correctly now. Some of you listeners might be able to correct me. Where you would say, I don't want uh, chatterjees, I want bannerjees, right? I don't want people, I mean, this is no reference to people with those surnames. Swami would say, I don't want people who go on chattering. I want people who will be Banerjee's, who themselves will be like banners of my message, whom Swami, whom people can see and learn from, right? So that is the essence of these beautiful, these three play of words that is being used here. Proktavan, then Praha and Abravit. The Lord revealed, the sun god taught or instructed, but when it came to Ikshvaku and Manu passing it on to Ikshvaku, he just shared knowledge which he received. Right. In fact, there's going to be a continuation of this in the next shloka. We'll go to that. Where Krishna says, in this manner, it was passed from one to the other. So we'll listen to the second shloka and we'll discuss about it after that. Evam param paraptam imam rajarshayo viduhu sakale neha mahata the king sages knew this yoga, which was received thus in regular succession. That yoga, O destroyer of foes, is now lost owing to a long lapse of time. Ikshvaku then passed it on to the other kings that followed. right? And the kings that followed 
learnt it from him but not all of them were rajarshaya right that's the word krishna uses rajarishi those who were kings but at the same times they were also rishis right who were in nature who were sage like one example that krishna has already mentioned is king janaka so those kings who were inclined to receive this knowledge and practice it after having received it they became sages even though they had the responsibility of ruling kingdoms because all of these people manu ikshvaku and the later kings who followed up until janaka and rama and all of them of course rama is an avatar but he's looked up as a, a king who embodied the best way to rule a kingdom right so these people are considered as rajarishis who did not have to give up their duty towards their kingdom they were ruling but at the same time they became sage like in the way they carried out their duties and here krishna says parampara praptam parampara means tradition right and parampara praptam means to receive it as a traditional hand down right so krishna says the knowledge that came from the lord not as a suggestion but as a revelation was then passed on through those kings who ruled with a spiritual mindset and then he says evam thus imam this which means this knowledge rajarshayo viduhu the kings who are also rishis got to know parampara praptam by means of a passing down through tradition sayogah that yoga mahata kalena because of the passage of a long period of time nashtah has been destroyed parantapa o destroyer of enemies which means arjuna so krishna is telling arjuna you may think that what i am telling you is very new or very modern a very a different modern paradigm but it is not so it appears new only because people have lost it in the passage of time it is like all the amazing products we see today you know from our traditional indian grandmother's kitchen who now have started making its appearance in the western market where it is spoken of as something like a new age thing which has come right for instance when we would all have cold as children our grandmothers would force us and make us drink haldi milk right they would put turmeric in hot milk and they would put some pepper in it and uh, it's a magical remedy for any kind of throat problem there are sometimes when i've coughed very badly on the show and some very elderly listeners very lovingly wrote mails to me saying that please drink haldi milk right so it's a part of our tradition all our grandmothers must have made us drink that and uh, reluctantly and refusing to take it we all have you know gulped it down so something like that has been in our tradition for so long today the same thing has come in the market and it's called turmeric latte right it's nothing but our haldi milk but we think it is something like a new age phenomenon and you know we are ready to take it because now it appears all cool and modern so maybe arjuna was thinking how nice i'm getting this very very special sadhana from krishna or krishna is telling me something which is so profound and i've never heard like this before i have not heard of it in my school i've not heard of it from my elders krishna is telling me something very new or maybe arjuna was thinking that i've never heard of such an approach of jnana is it really true maybe he had the doubt i don't know what was his approach but krishna is asserting to arjuna that he is authenticating it literally by saying it is not something which is new it is an ancient eternal pathway 
And very interestingly, in the previous verse, Krishna had referred to it as avyaya or imperishable. But here Krishna is saying nashtaha, it has been lost or damaged. In fact, referring to this very contradiction, Swami says you might think of this way and Swami explains this in Gita Vaini. I thought probably it's better to read out that one particular passage from Gita Vaini. It's uh, self-explanatory. I'll read and Swami says, and I quote, You won't fail to notice the discrepancy of the yoga being described as ever-existing and the statement that it was lost. Of course, the statement was not made without thought. Here, the indestructible is spoken of as having been destroyed. It is called indestructible for two reasons. Its origin is the Veda, which is free from decline. Its consequence is liberation, which is also free from decline. This yoga, on account of the passage of time, neglect and disuse, was forgotten. That is to say, it disappeared. It was lost to view. It declined. The statement means nothing more. Bringing it to life means bringing it once again into use, not creating it ab initio. Lost to view is the sense in which the word nashtaha is used in a very general way. That is how you have to interpret it. For the Lord will never devise a thing that will suffer destruction. End of quote. So as Swami explains, it is referred to as indestructible because it is the truth. It is the path defined by Krishna. It is like a remedy for a bodily ailment. It may be forgotten, but because it is forgotten, it will not stop working. Just like the example of the turmeric milk which I gave you. Say for centuries, people have forgotten, kind of stopped using that as a remedy for cold. The remedy will go away from use but one day, let's say somebody accidentally drinks turmeric milk, which is hot, while they're having cold and they find that they're getting relief. It is because the remedy might fall out of practice or fall out of use, but the remedy's validity will always stand, isn't it? Right? If a medicine which solves a particular health problem is that knowledge is lost, let's say, and somebody discovers it serendipitously, it will still work. So this yoga is lost because people have stopped following it, is what Krishna is saying, but it is never destroyed. It's like a pathway which goes through a forest, right? If people have not walked through that pathway for a considerable amount of time, then you'll have vegetation growing over the path or dry leaves would have covered it, but the path will still exist. And the day somebody wants to discover it, it is there to be discovered, right? So Krishna is telling Arjuna, Look, I taught this to a son. Nay, I revealed it to the sun god. So it is an infallible path. And many, many kings have benefited from this ever since it was given to the sun god and he passed it on. So Krishna is, in a sense, specifically speaking about kings because we all know that Arjuna is a kshatriya, he is a warrior and he's saying that, see, the kings have benefited from this. And then he is also hinting how fortunate Arjuna is because he is receiving it from Krishna himself. Right? There is a, another very important reason why there is a reference to Vivaswan and Ikshvaku, Manu and all of these people. Again, that's something which I am not going to go into in much detail. 
this particular shloka the first and the second shloka of the fourth chapter is sometimes misinterpreted because krishna does not necessarily say karma yoga he just says yoga he says i gave this yoga to sun god and you know you're receiving it from me today so that has left it a little open for interpretation so what is krishna speaking about some people say that krishna is speaking about karma yoga some people say that krishna is talking about sanyasa yoga i don't know how that uh, interpretation would come but it is open for distortion right but when we look at it when krishna gives this hint that he taught it to sun god and sun god passed it on to manu and manu to ikshvaku there are other scriptures apparently i think and there are mentions in the mahabharata elsewhere too where there is a mention of this particular lineage of tutorship right if i could uh, put it that way where the reference is very very clear that what is being spoken about is karma yoga right in the third chapter krishna categorically says there are two ways you know sanyasi and sankhya nam and for other people there is karma yoga right so there are two paths so there are other places where krishna mentions this in this lineage of uh, surya and manu and ikshvaku where clearly it says it is a reference to karma yoga and towards the end it says that you know this is the path which is passed on to all these people but for those who want to take sanyasa that path is also there you have to take gnana yoga right so clearly it's a reference which connects back to that so in that sense krishna has been speaking about karma yoga there is no doubt about that and even now he is saying that it is this karma yoga which has helped many of these kings who were in the middle of their duty who could not leave what they were responsible for they were all responsible for their kingdoms and the citizens they could not leave and go and through this path through this yoga they attain the ultimate right so krishna is very categorically saying that this path is important and i think i'm also very very grateful that in between we took the break and we went through that article that swami had written for the gita gnana yagna which is being conducted by the chinmaya mission right i had brother sai prakash with me and we went through that uh, particular piece of document which is very very revealing and categorically swami is saying what is the role of bhagavad gita where swami says it is for a person to be in society continue to do their duty and still strive aspire and to reach the goal right there is no doubt about that so swami's view on it is very very categorical krishna's view is very clearly related here again this is not to say that sanyasis are wrong in their choice or sanyasa is a wrong idea it calls for a different mindset i'm not going to go into that discussion again we've done that already it calls for a different mindset but for most of us as we've been going through this is a very very beautiful practical path which is available and that is what krishna says he taught it to surya krishna says surya passed it on to manu and manu to ikshvaku and here krishna is saying i am teaching it to you that's the next verse where krishna is going to say that this is the knowledge which is so ancient and how fortunate you are arjuna you are receiving it from me so we'll listen to that in the shloka and then we'll discuss about it sa evayam mayatedya yoga prokta puratanah भक्तो सिमे सखा चेती रहस्यम हेतदुत्तम दी सेल्फ सेम एंशियंट योगा हैज बीन टॉट नाउ बाय मी टू यू 
on the ground that you are my devotee and friend too this is the highest secret you know when we go through the bhagavad gita especially the portions where arjuna is raising questions or even in the first chapter where arjuna seemed to be completely in a disarray we might tend to think of him in poor light right even i while explaining might sound like i'm not impressed with what arjuna is saying or we get this thought sometimes you know why should arjuna ask so many questions you know if sami had told me i will i will just obey it without asking any questions why is arjuna asking so many questions to krishna why can't he surrender and just do what krishna is asking him to do right i mean these are points even i've mentioned on the show but we must never forget that arjuna was not an ordinary person right it was not without reason that he was chosen to be an instrument through whom the world would get the gita right in the introductory session of this entire series we went through that analogy where krishna refers to arjuna as the calf and the upanishads as being the cow right and so he says that arjuna is the reason why the world is getting this knowledge right he is being instrumental in the world getting this knowledge so it is not without reason that he's been chosen to be this conduit to be this instrument swami says in the gita vahini weak hearts or people who are weak in their mind they cannot grasp the gita and they can definitely not put it into practice arjuna in that sense was not merely a great warrior but he was a great human being a great person in the general sense too we've seen that krishna keeps referring to arjuna as parantapa right that's one of the names with which krishna is referring to arjuna parantapa literally means destroyer of enemies or destroyer of foes swami says in the gita vahini that he is not merely a destroyer of the external enemies but he is a destroyer of internal enemies too imagine the amount of self restraint that somebody like arjuna must have had he is arguably the greatest warrior of that time and he can single handedly defeat any great army and there are episodes in the mahabharata where he's proven this i mean there's no doubt about his valor there's no doubt about his capability right such a person of immense talent of immense abilities merely to respect the word of his elder brother merely to respect the word of his mother who said that all of you should be united he was ready to live in exile he was ready to put up with all the humiliation he did not retaliate and even now even at this point he is ready to give up everything and go away right when he thinks that that is going to be the right thing to do yes we might talk of him as being deluded we might talk of him as being having attachment and all of that but nevertheless you cannot take away the fact that arjuna is a phenomenal personality right somebody who is as swami himself has said not only capable of destroying the external enemies but somebody who is capable of destroying the internal enemies too krishna spoke extensively about controlling the body and controlling the senses in the previous chapter right but arjuna was himself already a perfect example for that and that is the character sketch of arjuna that the mahabharata gives his ability to concentrate on what he was doing at any moment is considered legendary but apart from all of this apart from all of the nature of arjuna and how great he was at all the critical points in his life at all the very important scenarios 
he always turned to Krishna. And he chose Krishna over and over again at all of those critical points in his life. The best thing for us is to not have any dilemmas at all, right? We are only hoping to reach that state where we have no doubts, we have no questions, we have no dilemmas. But when we talk about Arjuna, the best thing is to not have a dilemma. The next best thing is to turn to God every time you have a dilemma, right? And Arjuna did exactly that. Even in this particular state, even in this junction of him in the battlefield, Arjuna did not go to the elders before him. There was Bhishma, there was his teachers Drona and uh, Kripa. He did not go to them. He did not even go to his own elder brother Yudhishthira whom he looked up to. He turned to Krishna and he says, you guide me, I will follow. Right? Such discrimination does not come easily. That is why in this particular shloka, Krishna himself is saying, Arjuna, you are my devotee. He says, Bhaktaha Asi Me, you are my devotee. And Swami says, any number of people can call themselves devotees. Like we all do, right? We say, I'm a Sai devotee, I'm a Sai devotee for three decades. I'm a third generation Sai devotee, as though devotion can be passed on as ancestral property, right? But Arjuna got the title that he is a devotee from Krishna himself. How great that must be. Swami says, you can call yourself a devotee, but you should get that title from Swami. Swami should say that you are my devotee, right? And Swami says, Arjuna had that certificate from Krishna himself. Krishna is saying, you are my devotee. Bhaktaha asi me. You are my devotee. And not only a devotee, Krishna goes on to say, Bhaktaha asi me sakhacha. You are my devotee and my friend. Bhaktaha asi me sakhacha. You are my devotee and my sakha and my friend. Iti das adhya today sa eva yogaha. That very same yoga, puratanaha, which is ancient. Mayate Proktaha has been revealed by me to you. Again, Krishna uses the word Proktaha, meaning I revealed or I declared. He says, I revealed it to Sun God and I am revealing it to you. Why? Bhaktaha Asime Sakacha. You are my devotee and you are my friend. Krishna is trying to make Arjuna understand how sacred this knowledge is. When he says Manu and Ikshvaku, they are considered to be heroes of mankind, right? Every king actually aspires to be like them. They want to rule the kingdom like that. They want to attain fame and glory like them. And Krishna is saying, now I am giving it to you. And why is Krishna giving it? Swami explains the importance of the shloka. Swami says, because Arjuna, you are a devotee and a friend. That's a very, very important point that he's making. You are a devotee and a friend. If Arjuna doesn't have devotion, then he will not take the words of Krishna seriously and will not give it the due respect and value that it deserves. But if he has only submission and only devotion and looks at Krishna as a master, he will not be bold enough to raise questions and have his doubts clarified. That is why Krishna is saying, you are my devotee and my friend. You have the reverence, you also have that freedom, you also have that feeling of dearness that you will say, Krishna, I do not agree with what you are saying or I am not able to accept what you are saying, please explain further. That is why in the beginning of the third chapter, Arjuna very openly says, 
that what you're saying seems to be contradictory to me, right? And we spoke about how the way Arjuna words it is also very important. He says, your words are seemingly contradictory to me, saying that I believe that your words are right and true and fair, but when it reaches me, it seems contradictory. So please explain further, right? So that ability to say that I did not understand this or I do not get this, that comes from the attitude of friendship, right? So that is why Swami says that Krishna declared that you are my devotee and you are my friend. Though Krishna is using these two words, you know, he's saying devotee and a friend, Swami has explained in a particular discourse, Swami says the term bhakti, what we use for the word devotion in English, the word bhakti itself, Swami says, is a combination of the emotion of awe and friendship. Right? So Swami says bhakti is not going in front of God and saying, Oh God, you're great, you're the glorious one, you're the ruler of the uh, entire universe. Yes, that is only one part of devotion. Swami says true bhakti is where there is awe, respect and fear coupled with friendship, love and belonging. Right? That is only bhakti. The word bhakti itself means that. You know, I found that as a very, very beautiful description or definition of the term bhakti that we use so often. There should be awe and respect. There should be also that feeling that he belongs to me. Right? So if a devotee does not feel that closeness with the Lord, he will not be able to place his doubts before Swami. Right? So we must feel that dearness towards God. Not merely look up to Swami and say, Oh, you're my master. We should also feel that he is my Swami. That becomes a very, very important attitude to have. Right? There are a lot of people who say, Oh, Swami is my best friend. Right? A lot of uh, youngsters, self-included, we get into this mode that Swami is my best friend. It is not about addressing Swami as your best friend. Right? It is also about taking Swami's words very, very seriously. Swami's instructions very, very seriously. Right? The concept of friendship itself is very, very deep. I don't think uh, it is within the scope of this episode to talk about it. But just to mention, we have many, many relationships. Mother, father, husband, wife, children, boss, probably a, a business partner and all of this. All of these have some kind of a said duty that has to be adhered to, right? Even a mother-in-law, the word itself suggests that we are bound by some kind of a unspoken law is bound by what we refer to as a sanganiti and whatever Krishna has been talking about duty is one of the reasons is we have duties towards all of these people. If there is one relationship where there is no spoken duty there is no written duty that you are bound to do this, you are supposed to do this that is the duty of friendship right? There is no law which defines what a friend is meant to do for another friend. But nevertheless Swami says that when a friend is in need, the famous quote, a friend in need is friend indeed, right? So which means there is no law which defines a friend to obey the other friend's words, but one always does so because they are bound by love. So when we say to have that attitude of friendship to God, I do not obey Swami because I am meant to obey. If I don't obey, I will be punished or I am going to be ruined like that. We obey Swami because we love Swami. That's all. That's the end of it. I don't do what Swami tells me to do because it is good for me. I don't do what Swami tells me to do because it's going to take me to heaven. I don't do what Swami tells me to do because it's going to make my life better. I do what Swami tells me to do because He's my Swami. Right? That attitude is friendship. It is not about 
openly proclaiming that oh swami is my best friend and probably uh, in the modern parlance having swami's picture as your dp on your status or your social media accounts that does not make swami a friend this kind of an attachment to the lord that is what makes swami a best friend right so this particular statement which krishna is making bhakta asi me sakhacha you are my devotee and you are my friend i think is an indication to all of us we must aspire to become that swami we should be your devotee which means every word of yours is precious to us like as swami said these are declarations these are revelations that kind of a attitude we should have when we receive the message from swami but at the same time the feeling that he is my swami i do not have to hesitate to tell swami swami i am not finding this easy i am not able to figure out how to do this right that kind of a closeness and for that you don't need swami physically in front of you this is actually a mental attitude i'm saying this from the point of view of all of us you know when we first come to swami we all have flaws in our life right we all have battles we are fighting within us we have bad thoughts and impure thoughts which you're battling when we first come to swami i've noticed this within myself i've discussed this with some of my friends and you know who have concurred with this it takes a lot of effort to go to swami and literally open your heart to swami this is not physically but even in prayer even if you want to go in front of swami in your own altar or in your own meditation close your eyes it takes a little bit of effort to open your heart and say swami these are the mistakes i'm doing and i want to get rid of them i don't know how many of you have uh, can relate to this there will be a certain hesitation because you still look at swami as somebody who is so supreme and great and who's going to judge you it takes a little bit of effort to come to swami and say swami these are my flaws i want to get rid of them right i cannot speak of this to anybody else but i can speak of it to you right that journey or that one step towards god i think each one of us will have to take to be deserving of receiving the message from swami right so that is what krishna is speaking about here that is why in the shloka krishna you know goes on to say rahasyam hi etat this is indeed the secret uttamam and not any secret it is the finest of secrets when we prepare ourselves in that manner when we come to that relationship where we look at swami as the lord the master in the somewhere in the second chapter you know we came through that very beautiful portion where arjuna is absolutely distraught he's crying the shloka says that you know his eyes were welling up his uh, limbs were trembling he drops the gandiva and at that moment krishna actually smiles krishna smiles and starts advising him and we went through why krishna actually smiles the reason is finally you know krishna has been arjuna's friend for a very long time they've been comrades they've been two together for a very very long time but never once arjuna asked about these things to krishna and now finally he is in a position where he really wants to know he's looking at krishna and saying krishna tell me there's a beautiful portion where he says i'm completely confused i don't know what to do i submit to you please accept me as your disciple and please explain to me and at that moment krishna smiles because swami explains that this knowledge calls for a lot of deservedness one of the deservedness is to be a devotee first of all right and being a devotee is to have that reverence and at the same time feel the feeling of closeness towards the lord 
that is one of the prerequisites to be able to receive this knowledge and the next most important thing is to have the desire to receive i want to know right and swami says this is a knowledge which will be given only to the person who wants to know right and swami says that is why it says it is a rahasyam it is a secret it is not open it is not given to everybody and anybody it is given to the one who wants to know it is secret and it is uttamam it is a a supreme secret right it could be looked at as a best among secrets or it's a secret which is going to take you to the best position right so he says rahasyam hi etat uttamam he says this is indeed a secret and it is a supreme secret so that deservedness arjuna has received and that's why krishna is saying that look i've given it in the beginning of time i gave it to surya and i'm giving it to you i'm giving it to you because i consider you as my devotee i consider you as my friend right and you've asked for it i've spent so many decades with you but you never asked till now and now you're mentally prepared for it you're seeking it you have all the lakshyas or deservedness that call for you to receive this from me and i'm here and i'm going to give it to you right and how fortunate we all are we are also receiving the same message and we all are receiving it from sami through his discourses to its through his writings but this is the attitude with which we must have it probably a quick episode which i always remember when we say that we should ask for it is uh, during one of the interactions that we as students had with sami one of my classmates had asked this question to swami he says swami when moksha is the ultimate when liberation is the greatest of gifts why does swami give rings and chains and all of these things why doesn't swami give the ultimate to everybody right we know that swami loves us and we know that swami loves everybody the student asked swami why doesn't swami give this liberation or moksha to everybody swami did not uh, explain much in reply to that question swami turned to another classmate of mine and swami asked the student boy get up and this boy knelt down and swami asked him what do you want and this student was from north india and he had no clue what swami and this boy were talking because the conversation was happening in telugu he was just sitting there and probably enjoying swami's darshan right and this boy said swami i want another birth right that was probably the most inappropriate prayer to make in the middle of the conversation that student was having with swami and this boy said swami i want another birth swami has another birth why do you want another birth and this boy said swami i always wanted to serve my nation by being in the army this birth it couldn't happen because you know i had this greater opportunity of being a student of swami i've come away here so i want another birth where i'll be able to join the army and serve my nation Swami looked at him and Swami said very very noble thought you know and Swami blessed him and Swami turned to this other student and Swami said did you see he said see you ask for yourself if you are mature enough to ask for liberation you ask i will prepare you for that i will give you that i will lead you to that but you don't have any right to ask for others right because not all are prepared for that not all are ready to seek the ultimate there will come a time when they will want it and i will give it to them right so it is very important to deserve that and to deserve that first of all to be a devotee to say that he is my master and he is also my dearest best friend right to come to that state and then should say that i want this right i have had enough with everything that this world can offer 
the relationships, the authority, this fame and name and money and all of that. I've had enough of that. I want the ultimate, right? That desire should be there and that's what makes one deserving to receive the message from the master. With that, the listeners, will let's conclude this week's episode. I most humbly offer it at Swami's Lotus Feet. Thank you all for being with me. Again, I thank you all for this journey. We've completed 50 episodes. At the pace at which we are going, we are going to see many, many more 50s as we go through. So please stay with me and give me the pleasure of your company as we go through this Gita series, A Triune Pilgrimage. I'll meet you all again next week for the resumption of this pilgrimage. Till then, take care. Jai Sai Ram. <laughs>